0: This is the Meiji at 150 Podcast, I'm Tristan Grunow. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Kirsten Jomek, Assistant Professor in the Department of History at Adelphi University. Dr. Jomek is the author of Lost Histories, Recovering the Lives of Japan's Colonial Peoples, forthcoming from Harvard University Asia Center in April 2019. Dr. Zhomek, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, you have this book forthcoming from Harvard University Asia Center, Lost Histories, Recovering the Lives of Japan's Colonial Peoples. And you're looking at four groups from different parts of the empire. And so before we talk about the individual groups, I I was wondering if you might be able to talk about what does looking more broadly across the empire change about our understanding of, of Japanese colonialism? How does this add to our understanding?
1: Well, that's a great question. And in terms of what my book reveals, in terms of looking at these four vastly different groups of people, is how the Japanese had to adapt their administrative structures according to the local geography of each region. So, for example, by taking this macro approach, we actually see that the Japanese were very sophisticated in understanding the local history. Of these various areas and kind of grafting their Japanese governance on top of previous colonial structures. So for example, in Micronesia, previous German rule, they kind of used the German model and adapted it to the Japanese model. And by doing this, they were successfully able to take it from a level that had already been built up before. And so by looking at these different regions, We can see the sophistication of the Japanese empire, but we can also see their weaknesses. In some areas of Taiwan, especially in the indigenous regions, we can get a sense, and this is something that I think my book reveals counter to other books on Taiwan, is how weak the Japanese were and how much they had to rely on indigenous people to rule. And so by taking this kind of macro approach, looking at Taiwan, looking at Okinawa, looking at Hokkaido and also looking in Micronesia, we can see that the Japanese had various systems of rule, relied upon indigenous people, and they did so in multifaceted ways. You know, so it's really kind of giving the Japanese, I don't know if you would say credit for being so adaptable to different situations, but also understanding that there was no perfect Japanese way of ruling that they kind of grafted in each region, regardless of the local history, that rather in some cases, especially in Taiwan and Micronesia, I argue that they were kind of on the back foot. And this kind of weakness meant that indigenous people had a greater role than we attribute in histories of Japanese colonialism.
0: That's a great point about that adaptability and, and learning from local customs in order to make Japanese administration more flexible. And I'm reminded of writings of Goto Shimpe, for example, who has this famous line about, oh, well, we can't just apply metropolitan policies directly to the colonies we have to adapt our local administration. And he says, after all, you can't turn a flounder into a sea bream overnight. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Taiwan especially, but it does seem true for all of the parts of the Japanese empire, from Siberian areas in the far north all the way down to the tropical south. And so you mentioned these four different areas, Hokkaido, Taiwan, Micronesia, Okinawa. Can you tell us why these four places?
1: Yeah, and so this book, what became this book, it all began in grad school and it was kind of a project of necessity in terms of when I was reading about, you know, colonial peoples, I couldn't find a lot of information on Micronesians except for, you know, Mark Petes Nanyo. I couldn't find a lot about Taiwan's indigenous peoples at that time. I believe Paul Barclay was just getting his first articles out because this was in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. You know, for the most part. There wasn't a lot on these groups. Um, I knew, and Hokkaido had by far the most scholarship done, and Okinawa less so. But the the idea is, when I was in grad school, I was trying to find what was it like for these people under colonial rule. I found a lot of books on, you know, Okinawan literature. I found a lot of books on the Han Taiwanese in Taiwan. But in terms of trying to find everyday people's experiences, that was kind of the information that I found difficult to obtain. And so part of the rationale or reasoning behind choosing these four groups was my thought that there's a lot on Korea, there's a lot on Manchuria, there's a lot on the Han Taiwanese. And that scholarship had coalesced around a certain viewpoint about Japan's colonial peoples based on assimilation it had been easy narrative where in the 1930s, when war comes, everyone becomes imperialized towards the war project. And, you know, the questions that I had were, how do people experience rule? What was it like? And is there something beyond the kind of model that I had seen and read about in grad school? And so that's like kind of what inspired the four different groups And, you know, I thought I could make the most progress or I could reveal the most information that would be useful to others. (laughs) I didn't want to walk the same path, Korea, Manchuria, Han Taiwanese. I wanted to take a less traveled path and see what I could find. And so part of the challenge was how could I find those histories and what type of methodology could I use to uncover these histories? And that's where I feel My book kind of makes a contribution in that I rely upon visual imagery, oral histories, oral interviews, as well as material objects, in addition to the written documents of the colonial archive, in addition to written documents by colonial peoples, to try to give a kind of fuller picture of colonial people's lives.
0: I was going to ask, you know, you're talking about some of these histories get lost, whereas the histories of other colonies like Korea and Manchuria, they're not as lost, and there is all of these documents. So I I was going to ask, was the decision to bring in oral history and material history a reaction to the lack of documentary evidence?
1: Yeah, no, I I think it was not... I don't know. It's it's actually like the chicken and the egg kind of question in the sense of it kind of in my search, I'm looking for anything that mentioned one person's name and I could find, you know, maybe a picture or an object that that person had created. And so in terms of gathering my evidence, I was open to everything. But then once I went into that direction, then I was able to find more. So I didn't start, you know, as a graduate student, hey, I want to look at pictures. I want to look at material objects. I'm going to look at oral interviews. I went the kind of old fashioned route thinking as a historian, I'm going to be in the archives. I'm going to be looking through documents. I'm going to try to find traces of these people. And I did do that for a while until I realized, wow, if I really wanted to get information, I needed to engage with living people. <laughs> I needed to engage with the indigenous people of these different communities. I needed to talk to the scholars. I needed to talk to people who knew the local histories and they were the best resources for pointing me not only to written documents, but material objects as well as you know oral histories. And I was fortunate to be able to meet or correspond with some of the grandchildren of the people that I write about in the book. Thank <music> you.
0: Talking before about some of the diversity in colonial rule in the Japanese Empire. And it's also a reminder of the diversity of the makeup of the Japanese Empire, too. And so could you tell us a little bit more about these different groups of people?
1: Yeah, I mean, before I tell a little bit about, you know, these different groups of people, I think your kind of statement is really important to emphasize, and which is the diversity of the people cannot be underestimated, especially when we look at Japan's empire as a whole, oftentimes it's compared to Western empires as well. Japan was an empire of other Asians, so it's just a case of Asians colonizing other Asians. And I really want to argue in my book about how much racialization and use of ethno-racial terms and distinctions was prevalent throughout the empire. And you know how ethno-racial hierarchies were structured in one area completely differed in another and you know you have really complicated complex racial hierarchies that are operating that don't mesh well with this idea that everyone is just understanding this like pan asian empire that's not how it operated And so I think, you know, I just kind of wanted to emphasize that point that you made in terms of the different distinct groups of people that I discuss in my book. Although I'm talking about these four different regions, I am actually only talking about one aspect of one region. So it is really astonishing to think about how vast and complex the empire was. So, for example, you know, I, I talk about Micronesia, but I'm really talking about a few people from Saipan and a few people from Palau. And I'm able to kind of, you know, talk about the local hierarchies of power and what I realized that in Micronesia, the Japanese were kind of in a quandary in that the people that were purportedly savage had already had German and Spanish colonial rule, which meant that some of them spoke German. Some of them were already wearing westernized clothes. Some of them had been to Europe. And so, this idea that the Japanese had to quote unquote civilize the savage, those that they were ruling might have had a higher level of sophistication than the Japanese. And so, some of the things that I look at when I'm discussing the people from Palau and Saipan is how, when they're interacting with the Japanese, how that at times elevates their status, especially if they travel to Japan, but then back home, it complicates their status because the local communities don't appreciate their Japanized nature. And one thing that I think has often been neglected in Japanese empire studies is looking at the local reaction to these intermediaries with the Japanese. And you know, one of the surprising things I found with one of the people I discussed from Palau is there was a real strong disdain for him for working with the Japanese from the local Palauans and even the local Palauans and Japanese were monitoring him. He was purportedly thrown into jail. And so this kind of, easy narrative that we see, oh, colonial subjects wanted to be Japanese. What my research kind of uncovered is that through these processes of working with the Japanese, it often came with a heavy, heavy price. And one that we don't see too often, which is the local community really turning their backs on the people who worked with the Japanese. And so that was one of the surprising things with Micronesia. For Taiwan's indigenous people, I look at two groups, in particular, the Atayal and the Bunin people. And both of these indigenous peoples were purportedly the most violent and most savage and the ones who resisted Japanese rule the most. And when I looked at certain individuals from these groups, what I realized was how weak the Japanese were and how ineffective they were in, quote-unquote, managing the barbarian problem. And when I was going through the records and I was going through local histories that I interviewed some Atayal village elders, it was like night and day in terms of what the oral histories revealed versus the written documents. So one woman in particular, Yayut who is an Atayal woman who worked for the Japanese government, She was one of the highest paid indigenous people that worked for Japan. Her salary was even higher than some male indigenous workers, even some Japanese workers. And what I found from her grandson's photo album was a photo of her with all these Japanese colonial officials. And she's dead center in the middle, wearing a kind of female version of the colonial uniform. And I think, you know, you probably know the Japanese photo etiquette that you put the most important person smack dab in the middle. And to see her in the middle of this photo and then to hear the oral stories on her funeral, her body was carried and it was pushed on one of the push railway in Taiwan's mountains. You know, her body traveled all this way and then it was carried and the indigenous people could not even approach as her body went by and they just lined up the streets as her body went past and i saw her gravestone and it was this 3 foot granite headstone that had been shipped from japan and you know you have all these indications you know the, the headstone the oral histories about her funeral this photograph that all suggests that this was someone of significant status but initially when i found out about her she was written about as if she was a translator And so getting back to the larger question, what did I learn? Is that in the Japanese colonial photo albums or general histories of Taiwan, they have all their stereotypical characteristics of different indigenous groups. Atayal and Bunan are the most fierce, most savage. But within those groups, what I discovered is the Japanese were relying on these men and women of influence to such a degree to help keep the peace, so to speak, Keep the power balance from not tipping against the Japanese. And so, this one Atayal woman, as this kind of bridge between her people and the Japanese, to the extent that her treatment by the Japanese was beyond what you would expect for an indigenous employee. And then, on the Bunin side, you know, I tell the story of these two brothers who are hunted as rebels. For years, these brothers are killing Japanese policemen, they're taking their heads, but at the end of the day, the Japanese colonial officials are willing to work with them. They do not execute them, but they're willing to work with them in order to maintain the power balance. They're, they are not confident that they can take them out, and you know they are fearing of the potential repercussions of taking out these leaders. And so what my research reveals for both of these individuals in these two specific groups is how tenuous the Japanese position was and the kind of propaganda and picture that they're trying to promote to mass audiences in Japan completely conflicts with the reality on the ground <laughs> and like how they have to rely on these men and women of influence in order to get around and to keep control over these populations.
0: That's fascinating how much respect this woman had. And who exactly was she? You you mentioned Mm -hmm. that she was an employee, but a local power holder. Yeah, Uh, Who exactly was she? Or or do we have to wait to buy the book for that?
1: (laughs) You should definitely buy the book. Um, But I'll I'll give you a little tease uh, because her story is a story that we see in all these other empires. It's the Pocahontas story. So she's a 16-year-old girl, the daughter of an Atayal chief who saves the life of an 18-year-old boy from Kyoto who was in Taiwan to collect medicinal plants for his family's pharmacy. And as the Japanese media reported, she saved his life by begging her father to not kill this foreigner. They fall in love, they go to Taipei, and eventually she starts to work for the government as a translator, For these tour groups. Part two of my book is all about tours where the Japanese government took various indigenous peoples to the metropolis to show them the wonders of civilization. So the entry point of why she's part of the story is she's a translator for these tours. And how I originally found her was finding a clipping, oh, this tour group came to Tokyo. This woman, Ayutsubai, Was the translator. And so when I found that she was named and she was a female, I was like, wow, this is really different. In Japanese newspapers, usually you'll get a few chiefs named, but you're never going to have like a female named. And so because she was named, I thought she must be someone important. So I started looking in every document I could find. You know, I discovered she married this Japanese guy, Nakano Chuzo, and then through More and more research was able to eventually uncover where she was from in Taiwan, saw her gravestone, talked to the village elders, met a relative. Her grandson, who showed me the photo album, was able to then kind of see that this woman of importance, where her legacy in the village was such that the Japanese-run elementary schools would take the indigenous Atayal children to her grave... And say, this was a very important woman. I was able to, you know, after many, many years, discover how important she was. But the way that I found her was just through a newspaper clipping. And so, one of the things that I do in the book is use certain themes as my entry point. And then within that theme, I follow an individual. And so, although she's a translator for the tour group, mm-hmm. It's less about her role as a translator and more about the trajectory of her life and what does her life tell us about colonialism in Taiwan, specifically the indigenous regions and this kind of dual life that she led.
0: She was a translator on these tours to the metropolis. So, can you tell us more about these tours, and then particularly how did the people react to seeing Tokyo?
1: Yeah. So, the tours to the metropolis was a program that the Japanese colonial government did in Taiwan only for the indigenous people of Taiwan. They did not run it for the Han Taiwanese. Um, They did it for the indigenous people of Micronesia. They had Korean tours to the metropolis. And a few tours to the metropolis from Manchuria, and so the whole goal, you know, it's cheaper and more expedient to show people civilization by actually bringing them to the heart of empire than you know having them sit in a classroom or watch a movie. So we're gonna we're gonna bring them to Japan, and then after they see the wonders of civilization, they'll go back to their home communities and be inspired to kind of lead. Reforms or to work with the Japanese. So that's the goal. And the purpose of my book and my approach to the tours to the metropolis was not to reinforce this narrative that somehow by seeing Japan, their lives were changed, but rather show that this one person who went on the tour, this is how they came to be on that tour, but use that as a jumping off point to exploring the person's life in a larger context. In terms of how they reacted when they were in Tokyo, you have numerous, numerous accounts, many, many different reactions. You have the typical Japanese account of how they reacted with awe and all this wonderment. But some of the other people who gave their impressions years later after they were interviewed, after the colonial period ended, talked about how seeing the disparity of how they were treated made them hate the Japanese.
0: Speaking of diversity again, and you know, we are talking about the diversity of peoples around the empire, was there any similarities and reactions that you found from people, you know, even though there was such diversity in administration, diversity in makeup, did you find any common reactions amongst these people to Japanese colonial rule?
1: So... Let's just focus on if we just look at the tours for the people from Micronesia who went to Japan. I kind of have four people's stories. And I talk about one person, Pedro Ada, who goes to Japan. He studies at Sophia University. He's kind of like this model, study abroad student. And when he gets back to Saipan, he actually decides to move to guam and when he's about to go to guam the japanese say to him we've invested all this money into you and you you know you're leaving and he he goes to guam and later on during the war years he works for the americans and he helps translate japanese documents and he's later thrown into jail and he's about to be executed so one of the points that I try to make with the people who I'm examining who go on the tours is that you don't get this kind of cookie cutter experience where they go to Japan, love it, come back and help and become part of the ruling intermediary class. I do have an example of one person who kind of has that experience and who after all these years still stays in touch with some Japanese people after all these years after visiting Japan. But I also have stories like Pedro Ada's someone who studied in Japan, learned Japanese, decides, you know what, I'm going to go to Guam because my family connection there. And, you know, the Japanese are so displeased and eventually is almost executed for his role in aiding the Americans. And so, you know, I really want to emphasize the diversity of individual experience. And, you know, one of the most famous rebels in Taiwanese history, Mona Rudao, with the Wushu Rebellion, he went on one of these tours and it did not bring him over to the Japanese side. In fact, you know, in 1930, he led the bloodiest rebellion in Taiwan's history against the Japanese. So, you know, it really is interesting to see the different individual trajectories. I think this book really shows the diversity of experience throughout the empire by following these different individuals as they travel Across the empire, through different colonies, and through to the metropolis, we see how there isn't this monochromatic category of oppressed person or colonial subject, but rather we see people with varying levels of power who are interacting with the Japanese in different ways. And on one hand, you have people who are working with and facilitating Japanese rule, in other cases, we have people openly defying Japanese rule to the point of being hunted down, bombed, threatened with execution. And so this book reveals the tenuous nature of the Japanese rule throughout the empire, as well as gives glimpses into local people's ability to affect their own lives.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Grunow at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, Meiji at 150artsubcca
1: Thank you for listening.